Every eight years, a wizard who has proved himself worthy may challenge the current Supreme Patriarch to a magical combat held in the Hall of Duels. This octagonal chamber contains the Staff of Volans at its center, and the first wizard who is able to grasp it will become the next Supreme Patriarch. The Lean, Mean, Sorcerer Supreme. This is The War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. My name is Nathan Stone and I will be your host today. This episode is all about the Colleges of Magic and the Supreme Patriarchs. We're going to do a little dive into the history of the College of Magic, each of the schools, and then explore the history of Thyrus Gorman and Balthazar Gelt. This past weekend was the Easter weekend, and I hope that our listeners had a lovely little long weekend if you're somewhere where you get Easter as a holiday. If not, well, I hope you had a good weekend anyway. This weekend has been particularly busy for me. I am recording this on Saturday, which is much later than I usually record an episode for this show, but I've been pretty busy with life, seeing friends and family and that kind of thing, and it really hasn't left me with a lot of time to do this episode. So this is going to be a slightly shorter episode than usual, but we are still going to have a lot of fun. Let's start out with some hobby and some news. In terms of hobby, there's not a lot of new on my plate, which is a good thing, honestly. I'm still painting up those second ed Cadian Imperial Guardsmen to be my chaos-worshipping gene-stealer-infected brood brothers, and that is going well. I really like the paint scheme that I've got for those guys. I've got five of them done, and I'm working on the back five for this first squad. And at this pace, I should be done somewhere in the early 2030s. So, really fast for me. <laughs> the other thing that I did this week was something that was just kind of silly. I had a couple of hours, and I really didn't feel like doing anything super productive. So, I painted up a Cairn Wraith. And this is one of the newer version of Cairn Wraiths, the ones that got kind of ported over to Age of Sigmar and the ones that they based the Night Haunt range and Age of Sigmar on. And so he is the, the very hollow plastic Cairn Wraith, but he looks very cool. I have a lot of time for the Night Haunt stuff in Age of Sigmar. I think it's one of the cooler ranges. For some reason, I really had this idea in my head that I wanted to paint a green and yellow ghost. So yellow bones and like a bright green cloth or shroud or whatever it is that that rests on top of them and he turned out really cool like really funky and different and I was really happy with him so I threw him up on the Warhammer Orchard Facebook page that is our community page if you're not a member of our community page and you're on Facebook check it out we have a lot of fun it's one part for this podcast one part for the Warhammer Orchard edition project which is making 6th edition and 8th edition kiss, and one part just fun hobby stuff, mostly for Warhammer Fantasy, but also the occasional 40k and Infinity stuff on there as well. In terms of news, we had our first live stream game last week, and that was a lot of fun. It was a lot <laughs> in general. The game was about four hours, which is 
a lot longer than I think we would have liked, but it was a big game. 2,500 points. Orchard Edition Warhammer Fantasy. Heinrich Kemmler and his forces versus the Wood Elves. A lot of fun things happened in that game. And going forward, we're going to try and have something on the YouTube channel every week, whether that be video, live stream, what have you. This coming week, and if you're listening to this on the Tuesday that it drops, it will have aired on Monday, so the Easter Monday. Scott is doing a game of Infinity on the live stream. I won't be part of that one. So if you're tuning in to hear my melodic voice, I am sorry, I will not be in that one. I'm not going to be in every live stream, it's just a little bit too much. And I want to make sure that I have time for the podcast and other stuff that I have to do for life. So Scott is going to be taking the lead on the live stream portion of things, but I will be in as many of them as I can reasonably be in. I should be playing in one before too, too long as well. But if you're interested in Infinity, or if you just want to check it out, or if you just want to watch Scott play a game, that will be up by the time that you listen to this. This is part of our plan to have all sorts of different games on our War Games Orchard YouTube channel. Though, if not a majority of the games, at least a plurality of the games, will be Warhammer Fantasy. That's really our bread and butter, that's what we enjoy the most, and so we want to play it the most. Finally, it's time for my obligatory Patreon plug. The War Games Orchard Patreon is where you find all of our bonus stuff, and we're starting to have quite a bit of bonus stuff on there for you to enjoy. We have four bonus episodes, a story on there, and some peeks behind the curtain of making this show, and and I guess just my life in general. If you like the show, if you want to support the show, that's the place to do it. It's patreon.com slash wargamesorchard. And for as little as a dollar a month, you can get all of that bonus stuff and make us feel really good about ourselves. So please do check that out if you're able to. That's it for news. Now let's head back to college. The Colleges of Magic represent a very unique aspect of the Empire in Warhammer Fantasy. There are other schools of magic throughout the world. In the nation of Kislev, in the city of Prague, there was for a long time a magical college. The elves, of course, have their own Tower of Hoth, and it's not unusual for the races of the Warhammer world to have their places of study for magic. But the colleges of magic are the most famous and probably the most powerful schools of magic within any of the human nations in the Warhammer world, certainly in the Old World. The founding of the Colleges of Magic occurred in 2304. This is immediately following the Great War Against Chaos. The newly elected emperor, Magnus the Pious, the savior of the empire, he asked the great elven mage Teclis, who had come to the aid of the human nations of the Old World during the Great War Against Chaos, to share with humanity his arcane lore. Teclis, being a little bit more far-sighted than many elves, and high elves in particular, are, realized that the human nations of the world, for there to be any lasting victory against the Dark Gods, would need to play 
a huge part, if not the main part, in holding back the darkness. And he agreed to establish these centers of learning. The High Elves and the older races of the world, such as the Lizardmen, they don't need to break magic down in this way. When a High Elf goes to study magic, he studies every spectrum of magic as a magic undivided, if you will. But mankind were just not quite smart enough to do that. Our human monkey brains just couldn't handle studying every aspect of magic. So Teclis decided to break up what would be the Arcane Lore 101 for High Elves into eight separate schools. And each of these schools was based around one of the eight winds of magic that blows down from the realm of chaos. Teclis founded each of the Colleges of Magic in Altdorf, probably because it was the safest, largest imperial city at the time. And each of the colleges is very different from the others, and they reflect the style of magic that they practice and teach. When Teclis founded the colleges, he gifted each order with a handful of crystal orbs that would become known as the Orbs of Sorcery. And each orb is infused with the essence of one of those eight magical winds, and rumored to have a little bit of Teclis's own power stored within them. And each of these orbs, like the schools themselves, takes on the style of the Wind of Magic. So, for example, the Orb of the Bright Wizards. It's wreathed in searing flames. And for the Orbs of Chamon, which is the lore of metal, it takes the form of this almost liquid mercury kind of orb, and so on and so forth. These are the most treasured heirlooms of each of the Colleges of Magic, and their use can only be sanctioned by the Patriarch of each school. The Celestial Hurricanum, which was a unit in the later era of Warhammer Fantasy for the Empire, it was kind of a battle altar that a Celestial Mage would be upon, at the center of this machine is the Celestial Orb, which is kind of neat that they could work it into a war machine as well. The Colleges of Magic are one of the main reasons why Altdorf is one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the Warhammer world. People come from all sorts of human nations to try and study in the Colleges of Magic. It's not at all uncommon to see people from... The Empire, the Border Princes, Estalia, Tali, Kislev, and even further afield in Altdorf because of these incredible places of study that are unlike any other. Now let's talk about each of the orders and each of the colleges so we can get a bit of a sense of how they operate and, and what they might look like. Starting with the Gold Order, that is the order that has supremacy in the later era of Warhammer Fantasy, as Balthazar Gelt is the supreme patriarch of the Colleges of Magic. Wizards of the Gold Order, whose symbol is the Soaring Eagle, study the lore of metal that flows upon the wind of Chaman. Much of the Gold Order's magic is alchemical in nature, but its wizards are also able to conjure molten lead that scorches and consumes, or they can corrode, strengthen, and even melt steel in the blink of an eye. 
The Wizards of the Gold Order practice the transmutation of metals, as well as developing spells of forging and runic inscriptions. They are the most accomplished makers of magical devices in the Empire, and their skills make the Gold Wizards very rich. Gold Wizards enjoy the most prestige of all the Orders, for gold has a mysterious, beguiling effect on men, sometimes enough to overcome their inherent fear and mistrust of wizards. As such, gold wizards often find employment as court wizards to nobility and rich mercantile cartels. The College of the Gold Order is akin to a great forge which lies upon the edge of the River Reich, so that the college's furnaces could be easily cooled by the waters. It is surrounded by crackling energies and dozens of towering furnaces that belch out pugnant, multicolored smoke. The Gold College seems like more of a factory than a school, which makes a lot of sense. Next up is the Light Order. The lore of light lies under the provenance of the Wind of Hish, and the symbol of the Light Order is the Serpent of Light. The Wizards of the Light College, also known as White Wizards, are rarely seen without treasured tomes and arcane scrolls in hand. Light magic is renowned for its powers of protection, yet a White Wizard can also conjure blazing lights to blind and burn the enemy. The lore is the hardest to master, for the Wind of Hish is particularly diffuse. To compensate, the Order employs many acolytes to aid its more senior wizards. This is unusual amongst the colleges, for wizards of other orders rarely take on more than a single apprentice at once. The pyramidal hall of the College of Light itself goes largely unseen. It exists within a magical aether realm, parallel to but separate from the mundane world. Deep in its labyrinthine dungeons lies the greatest sorcerous treasure vault in the old world, which also serves as a prison for many evil artifacts. It is the sacred duty of the Guardians of Light, an arcane society of the Order's most powerful wizards, to keep them locked safely away from the world. Then we have the Amber Order. The wizards of the Amber Order use the symbol of the arrow, and are devotees of the lore of beasts, which is heard as an eagle's cry upon the wind of Gur. Amber wizards are renowned for their savage appearances, their hair is wild and unkempt, and they dress in furs adorned with bones, feathers, amber beads, and primitive talismans. Few wizards can withstand the touch of amber magic, for it is the magic of bestial minds in untamed places, and it cares little for the ways of civilized cultures. The power of the Wind of Gur resides most strongly in the thoughts of savage creatures, and amber wizards can commune with animals of all kinds. They also have the ability to assume the strength of the greatest beasts, and can induce primal states of terror in others. The college's territory in Altdorf is but a totemic center and an occasional gathering place used only in rare and unusual circumstances. Amber wizards are reclusive hermits who prefer the company of beasts to their fellow man and make refuge in deep forests and high mountaintops. Makes sense that the Amber Order doesn't have a big flashy school, I assume that does make it difficult for potential students who are looking to join the Amber School. You would just walk up to this big totem and then hope someone maybe shows up and you can convince them to teach you some things. I don't really know how the recruiting process works here. Next up, we have the Jade Order. The wizards of the Jade Order embrace the winds of Gyran, symbolized by the coil of life. The wandering wizards of this order are druids who harness the energy of nature. Jade wizards wear green robes and traditionally carry a sickle as a badge of office. They often walk barefoot to better feel the energies of Gyran through their feet. 
A jade wizard's power is linked to the seasons, being vigorous in spring, powerful in summer, waning over the autumn, and weakest in the winter. With a gesture they can summon forests to obey their command, and with a touch they can heal fallen comrades. Jade wizards tend to roam the darkest forests where life magic flows more freely. There, far from the press and hustle of the cities, the wizard can learn from the trees of enemy troop movements and imminent threats before returning to Altdorf with news. The Jade College in Altdorf is an unusual place, for its high walls conceal a wondrous arbor of trees whose boughs form the beams and pillars of the numerous towers and mighty halls. Of all of the orders, I think I find the Jade Order most appealing. Something about it sounds really nice. And also, I feel like my vigorousness is linked to the seasons as well. Unfortunately, don't have any of those magical powers, though. I just hate winter a lot. Next up, we have the Celestial Order. The Comet of Power is the symbol of the Celestial Order, which is made up of wizards who study the lore of the heavens that comes from the Wind of Azure. Celestial wizards, also known as astromancers, spend most of their time gazing into the night skies, plotting the movements of astral bodies. They are experts in divining the future, and the most powerful of the order can even scry portents by peering into crystal balls. Celestial wizards are equally feared and respected for the awesome powers that lie at their disposal. Their spells are able to call lightning from the skies and summon meteorites to smite their enemies. The sixteen towers of the Celestial College are the tallest buildings in Altdorf. A shimmering dome of enchanted glass encloses the peak of each spire, the information gathered from these towers is fed into a vast magical astrolab at the heart of the college that spins on the head of a mysterious silver needle. From this, the masters of the Celestial College read the myriad signs and portents in their bid to understand the Empire's potential futures. The Celestial Order, home to the Celestial Hurricanum that we spoke about earlier, and one of the more classical-looking schools in Altdorf, I would presume, You'd get those big telescopes sticking out of the top of each of those towers. Very neat. Then we have the Grey Order. The Grey Order studies the lore of shadows. Provenance of the Wind of Ulgu. The Order's symbol is the Sword of Judgment. The Grey Order is the most secretive of all the Colleges of Magic. Indeed, though its members refer to themselves as Grey Guardians, just who or what they might be guarding remains unknown to outsiders. The Grey Order studies spells of concealment and illusion, which do not lend themselves well to the favor of ordinary folk. They are sometimes called trickster wizards, though never to their faces. More commonly, they are referred to as Grey Wizards, named after the color of their robes, hats, and wild wolfish beards. They are wanderers who are often employed to deliver vital messages across the Empire, what makes this so mysterious is that they seem to cover the vast distances involved, almost invisibly and at impossible speed. The Grey College is a worn and shabby building in Altdorf's poorest and most disreputable district. Even the City Watch shuns the area for its den of rogues, thieves, and murderers. Yet the Grey Wizards come and go, sometimes disappearing for years at a time, by a multitude of secret entrances and magical tunnels, known only to the Order's wizards. Not tricks, Dad. Illusions. <sighs> I love the Grey Order. I think they're really fun. I like that they just have this big, shabby, 
worn down building. It would just look awful in the poorest part of Altdorf. And they come and go by secret means. There's a little bit of Harry Potter, I think, to the Grey Order a bit. It just reminds me of the, the type of things that you might see in that series. Next, we have the Amethyst Order. The focus of the Amethyst Order, whose symbol is the scythe, is the lore of death, carried on the carrion winds of Shyish. Amethyst magic blows most strongly in places of death, such as corpse-strewn battlefields and graveyards. Amethyst wizards tend to carry scythes, skulls, hourglasses, thorned robes, and other symbols of the grave. For this reason, they are also referred to as death wizards. These are our edgy wizards. Hopefully it's just a phase. Amethyst wizards have mastery over spirits, and it is said that they can steal the souls of the living and summon black winds of death. Whilst such abilities are nothing compared to the evil sorceries of true necromancy, their morbid association forever taints the amethyst wizards in the eyes of the common folk. They are particularly loathed by the priests of Moor, who are deeply suspicious of the amethyst wizards' penchant for lurking near their cemeteries. Indeed, the halls of the Amethyst College are akin to a great necropolis, and the stench of death lingers around it. This is the college that you don't want to uh, visit on open day. Maybe just try one of the other colleges first to see if you like it better. Really, nobody's first choice, except for like the weird kids. And then, I don't know, I don't think I trust the Amethyst Order either. Lastly, we have... The Bright Order. The lore of fire or pyromancy is born upon the searing wind of Akishi. Akishi? Akishi? One of those. The study of the Bright Order. The key of secrets is their symbol, representing the unlocking of knowledge. Fire wizards are easily recognized for their red robes and wild orange hair and beards. They are ruddy of skin and are frequently adorned with tattoos that writhe with the weaving of their spells. They are of a fiery temperament, their anger capable of changing from a guttering flame to a raging inferno in a split second. The Bright College is a marvel of architecture. Blazing towers rise like pillars of fire into Altdorf's sky. At the heart of the college, a gigantic beacon burns both day and night, and once cast an eerie scarlet glow over neighboring districts. The college now stands alone, however, surrounded by a blackened wasteland, where, according to hearsay, a warren of streets once stood. Not great for property values in the area, obviously, but it sounds like quite a sight to see the Bright Order. These are the Colleges of Magic, and I think one of the most interesting parts of the Empire just in general. This information is from the 8th Ed Empire Army book, and I've said it before on the podcast, and it is worth stating, I know a lot of our listeners are fans of earlier eras, but the 8th edition books are really well put together, regardless of what you think of the edition. I'm not a fan of the edition on its own, but I love the books. They are full of incredible art, incredible stories, and very well-developed fluff. I think the army books are easily the best part of 8th edition, and if you get the chance to find them cheap, even if you're never going to play 8th edition, they're great to just go over just to read the various lore and the various bits of neat stuff that are in here. I really do recommend it. Each of the Colleges of Magic has a patriarch. This is the leader, the headmaster, 
if you will, of the colleges, the Dumbledore of the colleges of magic. And once every eight years, they get together to decide on a supreme patriarch. The supreme patriarch is the king of magic in the empire, or maybe the emperor of magic in the empire. Their word is law for that eight years, and they are the highest authority within the colleges of magic. The way that they do this, as you might suspect from very learned scholarly men, is to have a giant magical gladiatorial duel. Makes perfect sense. The reigning Supreme Patriarch can be challenged by another from one of the schools of magic, and to become the challenger is basically a elimination contest between the other colleges of magic, as there can only be one challenger per year, and with eight colleges, you can go quite a long time without having a challenger from your college. For the later era of Warhammer Fantasy from 6th to 8th, the Supreme Patriarch is Balthazar Gelt, who is from the Gold Order. But before him, we actually had an entirely different Supreme Patriarch in the Hero Hammer era, and that was Thyrus Gorman. Thyrus Gorman you will find in the 4th edition Empire Army book, and he is an interesting character. Not a lot of lore on old Thyrus, unfortunately, just where these books were so packed with special characters, there wasn't really a lot of space for lore, and he didn't get a whole lot devoted to him. He was a bright wizard, and he had some interesting items and some interesting rules. We're going to look at him in the Hero Hammer era here before we move on to Balthazar. What's interesting is that in this 4th edition fluff, the duel to choose a Supreme Patriarch happens every seven years instead of eight. I'm not really sure why that was changed. And the lore included that the winds of magic will blow strongly for the college which supplies the Supreme Patriarch, while the other colleges will find their magic dimmed. This isn't emphasized in the later era. I think probably because it didn't make any sense. The winds of magic blow as they will from the realm of chaos, the fact that someone is the Supreme Patriarch of the Colleges of Magic in the Empire really doesn't and shouldn't make a difference in how strongly any particular wind of magic blows. I'm not sure how the early era Games Workshop writers imagined this working, like the winds of magic had some kind of stake in this. Perhaps they, they had some kind of bet, or there was some kind of wagering between the uh, powers of chaos as to who would come out and... They would reward the uh, victor with their particular magic blowing more strongly. It didn't make sense, but it is what it is. It's a, a fun little part of the early fluff that really doesn't translate very well. This is what we get on Gorman himself. The current Supreme Patriarch is Thyrus Gorman, bright wizard and leader of the wizards in the Empire. He attends the Imperial Court in Altdorf and is one of Karl Franz's oldest and most trusted nobles. He carries the Staff of the Patriarchs, made for the first Supreme Patriarch Volans, by the warrior mage Frederick von Tarnas after the Great War Against Chaos. We don't get a lot on him, unfortunately. His profile is that of a human wizard lord, movement 4, weapon skill 4, ballistic skill 3, strength 4, toughness 4, 
4 wounds, initiative 6, 3 attacks, and leadership 9. As far as equipment goes, the Supreme Patriarch carries a sword, but wears no armor as this would compromise his magic. He may also take a number of magic weapons and other items as described below. He can ride a armored warhorse for 7 points, or a monster. So you could stick him on a Pegasus if you wanted to make an early version of Balthazar Gelt. Under magic, it tells us that Thyrus Gorman is a level 4 bright wizard. He may cast spells in the normal manner as described in Warhammer Battle Magic. What I'm not 100% sure on is if Thyrus Gorman, being a bright wizard, must take his spells just from bright magic, or if he can take any of the Colleges of Magic. It would kind of make sense being the Supreme Patriarch, but also I think it would break the lore somewhat in that the human mind can't really handle all of the different types of magic, which is why Teclis broke them into these eight colleges. I think if you want to be lore-friendly, you take him as a bright wizard and just give him the spells from bright magic. But whether or not that is rules as written, I don't know. For magic items, the Supreme Patriarch may carry up to four magic items in total and must carry the Staff of Volans for 75 points. Other items may be chosen as normal from the magic supplement. This is interesting because we don't get a lot of characters that can carry more than three magic items. You do have to take the Staff of Volans for 75 points, and he is 290 points base. This is an expensive character, however, he is a level 4 wizard, which you're always going to pay a lot for, and the Staff of Volans, as far as magic items go, I think is really good. The Staff of Volans is a potent aid to magic. Any spell cast by the bearer of the staff will automatically work. It cannot be dispelled or nullified in any way, either by a magic card or by a magic item. The Staff of Volans has a limited supply of magical energy. Roll a dice after each spell is cast. On a 1 or 2, the staff has run out of energy and will not work for the remainder of the battle. So there is a 1 in 3 chance that after using it, it stops working. You don't want to use it for throwaway stuff. You want to use it for important spells that are going to change the game. But having that guarantee can definitely be worth 75 points. Again, if you're just using Bright Wizard Magic in 4th edition or Battle Magic in 5th edition. I really don't know if you're gonna get that value there, where they're not the most powerful spell decks that you could have. I think there's play here, though. I think it's really cool that he can take three magic items on top of that, although you're gonna make yourself a very expensive wizard out of this Supreme Patriarch. All in all, I think he's pretty good. As far as special characters go... I like him. I like him for an Empire special character. Their special characters weren't much to write home about. Yeah, I think he is probably worth playing with, or at least worth trying out. Before we move on to Balthazar and all of his interesting business, I want to share with you guys a story. And the story is from the 6th edition Empire Army book. 6th edition was our introduction to Balthazar, and for a lot of players who had played during the Hero Hammer era, this was quite a large departure. Games Workshop in those days didn't tend to change a lot 
in terms of characters or fluff from one edition to another. It was mostly rules updates. This was a big deal because this is the Supreme Patriarch of the College of Magic changing from one person to another. I don't know what inspired them to make this change, though I do have an idea, and it might have been in Thyrus Gorman's look. He is a bright wizard. The bright wizards were, well, really bright, and by that I mean they were generally depicted in miniatures and in lore as having big, bushy, bright orange beards, very uh, yellowy, orangey, red clothing and robes. They were very Hero Hammer, is what I'm trying to say. Very much that Red Period Games Workshop. And I feel like perhaps Games Workshop thought that with this new direction, this is this grimmer, darker version of Warhammer Fantasy, they wanted a Supreme Patriarch model that looked grimmer, darker, and a little bit more brooding. There's a lot of influences that go into Balthazar Gelt, but all of them lead to a much more subdued model in terms of tones and a little bit darker in terms of fluff, and I think that might be why it went down the way it did, though this is entirely speculation on my part. What we're going to share today is the wizard duel between Thyrus Gorman and Balthazar Gelt. I had totally forgotten about this story before I came across it again while I was researching for this episode, and I'm so glad that I did. This is a fun one, and I do hope you enjoy. Thyrus Gorman was confident. He had won the ritual duel for the last three times in succession, and his powers were stronger than ever. His mastery of the fiery element was unmatched. Clad in the red robes of his order, Thyrus was wearing all the symbols of his position as master of the Bright College and supreme patriarch. Standing almost seven feet tall, hands on the hilt of his magic sword, Thyrus was an imposing figure. He was ready on the ritual position of the ruling patriarch in the Great Hall of the Duels. The huge chamber was shaped like an eight-sided prism. The thick walls, ceiling, and floor were made of gloss-smooth obsidian. That black stone was the bane of magic, totally refractory and inactive. Thyrus could feel his powers dimmed by the presence of so much of it all around him. Under the symbol of their own wind of magic, the masters of the other orders were standing in alcoves carved in the eight walls, protected by powerful enchanted barriers. Replacing the Patriarch in the position of the College of Fire was Hans Fierbach, Thyrus's most gifted apprentice. The Obsidian Chamber and the presence of all eight of the most powerful wizards in the Empire were necessary to contain the powers that the two contestants would soon unleash. After all, the winner of the duel would gain the title of Supreme Patriarch for the next eight years. The objective of the challenge was to reach the center of the hall, where an altar stood, shaped in the guise of the great wheel of magic. Levitating above its hub was the Staff of Volans, the Staff of the Patriarchs. The first contender to lay his hand on the staff would have his powers immediately amplified by the ancient artifact. At that point, the other wizard normally surrendered, if he knew what was good for him. Anything was allowed to stop the opponent from approaching the altar, and in the past there had been fatalities among the contestants. The position of the challenger was still empty. Thyrus's opponent was late. Maybe the upstart is scared, thought the patriarch. The three opponents he had defeated were all masters of their own order, 
while this Balthazar Gelt was just a young alchemist, a promising one, though Thyrus had witnessed his brilliant progress through the selection process of the Challenger. But gold wizards had never struck Thyrus as great warriors. The main tactic when fighting them was to keep them at a reasonable distance, to stay out of reach of their touch. Failure in doing so could result in being turned into a golden statue, and Thyrus had other plans for the future. Finally, the challenger walked into the hall through the gold entrance. The gate was immediately sealed behind him. Thyrus examined his young opponent and realized immediately that there was no trace of hesitation in him. He could not see the face of Balthazar Gelt because of the mask he always wore, but could clearly understand from the posture of his robed body and from his resolute stride that the gold wizard was not there to lose. Balthazar Gelt assumed his codified position, eight steps in front of the gold wall, and stood ready. After the preparatory ritual, silence fell on the hall and tension began to build. The challenger had taken the first step towards the hub, thus starting the duel. Balthazar moved in. A gesture, a few words of power, and a golden light surrounded him. The young wizard suddenly melted into a pool of liquid gold that zigzagged toward the altar. Thyrus laughed and formulated a counterspell, while summoning the mystic crimson bands to hold his opponent. When he saw the gold wizard trapped, Thyrus cast a second spell. He was immediately enveloped by fiery wings and lifted into the air towards the staff. A sudden surge of gold energy vaporized the bands, then suddenly Thyrus crashed to the floor with a scream. The robe of the bright wizard, his wide mantle and everything he was carrying had suddenly turned to lead. Balthazar started to walk towards the altar. In a split second, the body of Thyrus was enveloped by intense flames that quickly melted the lead, and the patriarch was back on his feet. A scarlet scimitar, the concrete manifestation of Thyrus's anger, materialized in the air and streaked towards Balthazar. The scimitar was met mid-flight by a burnished gauntlet, similarly conjured and the two spells cancelled each other out in a flash. Next, Balthazar fought back, and a golden cage imprisoned the Red Wizard. Thyrus felt mocked by the refusal of his opponent to use offensive spells, and a ray of intense heat erupted from his outstretched arm. The fiery energy carved a great hole in the cage, and hurtled toward the Gold Wizard. Balthazar raised his left-gloved hand, and the beam was stopped by a shimmering golden shield. Thyrus kept up the pressure, and the ray focused into a very thin lance of red energy. Balthazar's shield was growing dimmer under the attack, and he obviously could not resist much longer. The right hand of the gold wizard rose and glowed for an instant, with no apparent effect. The patriarch was triumphant. Soon the challenger would have to surrender or be turned into a pile of charred bones. Then Thyrus suddenly realized that something strange was happening to his legs. He felt a sensation of icy coldness starting to spread up his lower limbs. Thyrus had to interrupt the attack. He looked down. With terror, he realized that his body was in the process of turning to gold. How was that possible? He had not been touched. Unless... His own heat ray. The ray had established a contact between the two wizards. The cursed Balthazar must have channeled the gold energy along Thyrus's own spell. For a second, the patriarch was in the grip of sheer panic. Such skill such control. Then his warrior spirit took control once more, and he directed all of his fiery energies in a desperate attempt to stop the transmutation. He concentrated on the cold feeling of the metal and fought it back with all the fire in his veins. After a difficult struggle, the patriarch managed to stop the gold energy at his waist. He raised his head again, just in time to see Balthazar now only a few yards from the altar. 
With his legs still paralyzed, the Patriarch raised his arms and evoked the most powerful defensive spell of his order. A great wall of fire appeared between Balthazar and the altar. The creation stretched from one wall of the vast chamber to the other, and reached the vaulted ceiling. Thyrus directed all of his remaining energies, raising its temperature. Soon the barrier was burning white with heat. No living creature could go through it without being destroyed. The two wizards had reached a stalemate, it seemed. Thyrus could not move, and could not lose his concentration to keep up the wall. Balthazar was an arm's length from the staff, and still could not reach it. The Patriarch was thinking hard. He had a very short time to find a solution. Then, once more, he witnessed the impossible. Was it an arm of solid gold which stretched through the wall and grasped the staff? The bright light of his spell made it difficult to see clearly. Then it was all over. The chamber was filled by a flash of golden light that dazzled the masters in their shielded alcoves. When they could see again, Balthazar was standing in the center of the hall, the staff firmly in his hands. In front of him was a golden statue. Only the eyes and the mouth of the patriarch were still flesh. The calm voice of Balthazar echoed in their minds. Thyrus Gorman, you forgot that the essence of metal is in equal parts stone and fire. This has caused your defeat. I could take your life now, but the Empire needs your powers against its many enemies. Your order requires your leadership, and I would rather have you as a friend. Do you recognize my authority? Aye, you won the duel in a fair fight. You are our supreme patriarch. And now you will have my respect and my loyalty. Until we meet again here in eight years. I'll be ready, Gorman, answered Balthazar. I'll be ready. I love that little story. A great passing of the torch between these two wizards and a rare magical duel in the fluff of Warhammer Fantasy that is between two Empire wizards. There's a lot here that is a lot of fun. Balthazar Gelt is a real wonderkind of the Colleges of Magic and the Gold Order. As we learn in that story, he wasn't even the Grandmaster of the Gold Order before challenging successfully Thyrus Gorman and replacing him as Supreme Patriarch. Gelt famously arrived in Altdorf by means of a ship from Marienburg. He paid for his passage on the ship with gold that he had transmuted from lead and left very quickly before all of the gold changed back into lead. He is an alchemist at heart and has an obsession with gold, specifically the transmutation of base metals into gold. He wears a golden mask, which he never removes. He started doing this after an alchemy accident. No one knows exactly why. The most common rumor is that it left him horribly disfigured. The other rumor is that it actually turned at least his upper parts into gold. And he wears the mask so no one knows. He is an interesting character. We're going to look at his rules here in 6th edition. Balthazar Gelt has a different profile in that he is tougher than a regular human wizard. And maybe this takes into account that perhaps he is partially gold. He is Movement 4, Weapon Skill 3, Ballistic Skill 3, Strength 3, Toughness 4, 3 Wounds, Initiative 3, 1 Attack, and Leadership 9. He rides on a Pegasus, and he will set you back 450 points. He has a sword, which counts as a hand weapon, 
and he wears no armor. His special rules are Alchemist Supreme, which means that he is a 4th level wizard and always uses spell from the lore of metal. He knows all of the spells from the list, which is always nice. I enjoy rules that give you all of the spells. I think it makes for a much more versatile character whenever you get that. He also has Alkahest. In the shooting phase, Balthazar can throw a vial of highly acidic alchemical substances taken from the box in the saddlebags of his Pegasus. The vials have a range of 6 inches and follow the rules for throwing knives. If Balthazar hits, the vial will shatter, wounding any target on a 4+, including ethereal creatures, war machines, etc. No armor-saving throws are allowed against these wounds. A neat little mini-shooting attack there could be kind of useful. He also has the Panacea Universalis. Instead of throwing a vial of Alkahest in the shooting phase, Balthazar can use a vial of Panacea Universalis taken from the box. The vial can heal one wound suffered by either Balthazar or his Pegasus. I like that one. Really saves him from taking some of that plink damage that you're always kind of worried about with magic casters. Combine that with his toughness 4, he is a little bit more survivable than your average spellcaster in 6th edition. He has three magic items. He has the Staff of Volans. This magic staff belonged to Volans, the greatest human wizard of all time, who was taught by no less than the supreme mage Teclis of Ulthuan during the Great War Against Chaos. Immediately after rolling the dice to cast a spell, or to dispel an enemy spell, the wizard wielding the Staff of Volans can pick up one of the dice rolled and turn it so that the result is one higher than the number rolled. Only then is the total score and its effects worked out, including miscasts and irresistible force. This is especially useful because the staff will make miscasts and failed dispels rarer. You need to roll at least three ones, and will make spells cast with irresistible force more common. If you rolled a five and a six, you can transform the five into a six. It's always funny when they write in about the usefulness of an item in its description, but Games Workshop is right in this case. That is a very good item. Oddly worded in places. Took me like three tries to get through the description, but a neat one. It's lost its auto-cast ability, which we're not surprised about, but it's still a very powerful weapon. I like it a lot. He's got the Gleaming Robe. This mystic robe creates a shimmering series of images of the wizard and his mount, constantly rotating in a dazzling whirlwind of iridescent colors confusing the aim of anybody attacking them with a ranged weapon. The robe gives a 3-up ward save against any missile attack, including template weapons and missile spells, directed towards Balthazar and his mount. The robe has no effect against close combat attacks and spells that are not magic missiles. Another item I like a lot, combine this with his ability to regen wounds, his toughness 4, and you're really not going to get through him with just missile fire, Finally, he has the Amulet of Sea Gold, an ancient elven heirloom found by Balthazar in the ruins of one of the abandoned colonies of the elves on the Estallian coast. The amulet adds one dice to any attempt to dispel an enemy spell targeted at the wearer, and or his mount, or otherwise affecting them. A nice small bonus there, something to combine with the Staff of Volans to make him very hard to cast magic at. I like Balthazar in this edition. 450 points is steep, but you're paying a premium for special characters all throughout 6th edition. I think he might be one of the better ones. 
And let's take a little look at him in 8th and see what changed and what stayed the same. I can tell you that his profile is unchanged except for his leadership has gone down to 8 from 9. That is not hugely detrimental as he's unlikely to be your general anyway. He's still level 4, still uses the lore of metal of course. He has a special rules fly and lore master lore of metal. Lore master was the 8th edition universal special rule that gave you all of the spells from that particular lore. Again, this is unchanged, it's just the wording that's changed by 8th edition. His magic items are updated for the new edition. He still has the Staff of Volans. And in this edition, it's been simplified to a plus 2 bonus on all attempts to cast spells. Probably its weakest form that we've seen it in. Still really good though, a plus 2 to cast is potent. His cloak has had its name changed to the Cloak of Molten Metal, and it is again simplified to a straight 3-up ward save against shooting attacks. Finally, his Amulet of Sea Gold makes a comeback, and it gives him Magic Resistance 1, special rule, and it's increased to Magic Resistance 2 if there are two enemy wizards currently on the battlefield, and Magic Resistance 3 if there are three or more enemy wizards currently on the battlefield. It's an interesting scaling mechanic that gives him more protection the more enemies he's up against. It's kind of neat. I think it's uh, a little unique. Under the Battle Wizards section in the 8th edition book, we do get a little story about Balthazar Gelt called The Trickery of Wizards. In the Imperial Year of 2516, the Empire stood on the brink of civil war as Theodric Gosser, the Elector Count of Nordland, sought to enact his territorial ambitions against neighboring Hochland. The Emperor asked Balthazar Gelt to intervene on his behalf, and the Supreme Patriarch traveled to Nordland's capital of Castle Salismund. Though ostensibly there as an ambassador, Gelt secretly transmuted the gold earmarked for Theodric's armies and mercenaries into worthless bars of lead before returning to Altdorf on the back of Hippegasus. The hired swords refused to fight without payment, and the looming threat of civil war was narrowly averted. In revenge, Theodric has sworn he will have Gelt's head. Gelt seems like a bit of a troll from what we have seen of him in the stories. He's got a bit of a swagger to him, and he's got, he's got some real confidence. He is more than willing to trick and deceive his way to the top. Gelt had one of the more interesting end times story arcs. His went places, and the end times was such a weird event, because you had dozens and dozens of characters that were all shoehorned into this one big story together. A lot of it didn't make a whole lot of sense when viewed from a wider lens or any lens whatsoever, but Gelt in particular went places in the end times. His first act is to create a wall of faith around Sylvania to keep Manfred von Karstein and Ark and the Black in. And that doesn't really work so well, but the principle, I guess, was sound. So when Archeon swept down from the north with his innumerable armies of madmen and demons, Gelt created what was called the Auric Bastion, which was a wall made out of magic and faith that 
ran from Erengrad in the west towards the World Edge Mountains in the east and protected southern Kislev and the Empire from this massive chaos horde. The problem was it took an immense amount of both magical energy and the power of faith to keep this thing operational, and Gelt was everywhere just trying to keep it functional and up and by the Empire time, and he actually runs into a fairly recently reborn Vlad von Karstein. Vlad is also looking to save the Empire in his own way, and he gifts Balthazar Gelt, and gifts is a generous term here, a necromantic tome called the Revelations Necris. And Gelt at first refuses, tries to refuse the gift, tries to not use it at all, but because of there's all this magical energy around the area of the Auric Bastion, the, the dead aren't always staying dead. And as Gelt's flying around, he's seeing these just legions of, of the dead that he's becoming more and more tempted to try and wrestle them under his control to boost the failing armies of the Empire and protect the northern borders. Poor Gelt is losing his mind from the stress of his position and trying to stop the Empire's destruction, and eventually he's actually tricked by the chaos demon, the Changeling, which, speaking of troll characters, is probably the biggest one in any Warhammer setting. This thing just likes to go around causing mischief and uh, making crazy schemes, so a classic Zinch demon. He was tricked by the Changeling, masquerading as a confidant that the Changeling itself had transformed into Valton, the Chosen of Sigmar, and was going to try and kill Karl Franz at this meeting where Karl Franz was going to present Valton with Gal Maraz. Gelt goes to try and stop this meeting, but he sounds like a lunatic when he tries to tell the Emperor this, and no one's believing him, and Gelt is going to be thrown out of this party, this meeting, and uh, in his desperation, he turns to magic to try and protect the Emperor and, and to stop this meeting from happening, accidentally uses some necromantic magic, and that's enough to damn him in the eyes of all around, and it forces him to flee back to Vlad von Karstein, where he becomes Vlad's apprentice, and is succeeded as Supreme Patriarch by Gregor Martak of the Amber Order. It's a wild journey for Gelt in the end times, one of the characters that just goes completely off the rails as far as storyline goes, not what you would have expected. Something I've mentioned before, I'm not a fan of the end times, but the end times did have a lot of interesting ideas. Some of the stuff that they played with was really neat, and it was interesting to see this fall from grace for Gelt. At the same time, a lot of the storyline around the Auric Bastion and this Wall of Faith and kind of things was a bit just odd. From a storytelling aspect, I, I think a lot of the end times didn't really work out so well, but yeah, I wanted to share that because it is such a bizarre storyline for a character like this. We're just about done with today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you could join one of the Colleges of Magic, which one do you think you'd go for? 
Personally, I really like the Jade College for whatever reason. I think I might lean in that direction. But let me know. Until next time, I hope you have a great week, and happy wargaming. Thanks for listening to this episode of The War Games Orchard. If you like the show, why not support us on Patreon? Our Patreon is where you will find our bonus content, and is totally non-tiered. So for whatever donation you'd like, you can have access to all of our bonus content. If Patreon's not your thing, then consider giving us a 5-star rating on your podcast platform of choice and sharing this show with friends. If you'd like to get in touch with us, check out what's new with the War Games Orchard, or just say hello, you can find us on Facebook. Our community page is the Warhammer Orchard, and while you're there, you can follow our regular page, the War Games Orchard. Outside of Facebook, you can get a hold of us by email at wargamesorchard at gmail.com. As soon as the duel commences, spells of great power are unleashed in a conflict that can only be safely contained by potent magical wards and the combined powers of a dozen or more master wizards. Tradition demands that the duel is not fought to the death, though on more than one occasion, the magical feedback has left behind little of the loser to be buried.